Yes, it is so good to be back. I missed last Sunday a couple things. Um, one, my wife's grandmother, who was 100 years old, uh, passed uh, the following week. And so we went Saturday, I guess two Saturdays ago, and had her funeral. And then we had a planned family vacation with that side of the family. And a lot of you guys know this, but um, there's like 20 something of us in one house. And so it's not really a vacation, right? But it was good. It was bittersweet because Sloan's grandmother is kind of the matriarch of that family vacation and she wasn't with us. But um, just personally, thank you so much for your prayers to either Sloan and I uh, with her grandmother's passing. And I'm just thankful to be able to get away uh, to the beach. Like I said, with 20-something of us in one house, it is quite amusing, all right? I don't know if you have family vacations like that, but there's several different generations, and um, there's nine kids under the age of 15, and so it's crazy. Um, but I love going to the beach and seeing the, all the kids, you know, either um, they're skimboarding or boogie boarding or building sandcastles, uh, playing bocce ball. Do you like that? It's, I'm like an old man when it comes to bocce ball. Um, I'm like, yeah, roll it out, right? Um, and so I know you're like that too. You're like, no, we don't do that, Dustin. We're, you know, we're a lot cooler than you are. But, uh, but have a great time at the beach. And it's just good. Like the kids are at the age, like if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. Like when they're younger, like you have to entertain them and make sure they don't drown in the pool and at the beach. And now it's like, I'm just going to sit right here all day and you go. All right. And like literally <laughs> they were, they were boogie boarding and they came in. They're like, we just saw two sharks. I'm like, okay, get back in the water, dude. Like I'm trying to read a book. Right? That's just how you just kind of get like that, right? You don't, you don't care. But um, I will confess this, um, is that I don't know if you're like this, and you don't have to raise your hand, uh, but I love to people watch. Are you with me? Any people watchers okay? I love to people watch. And in my opinion, two of the greatest places to watch people is one, the airport, right? You, I mean, when you're waiting on that plane, and boy, it's fun to watch some people. Um, but the second is at the beach. And I don't know, especially because we're at Cherry Grove Beach, and it's, while it is north of North Myrtle, to me it's Myrtle, okay? And we know that Myrtle is an all-inclusive resort area, all right? And, and so we're, I'm watching people, you see all walks of life from the southeast or from, from wherever they come, come there. And I'm just being real, okay? So don't judge me. But when you watch people at the beach, there's all kind of stuff. You see the older lady who's like picking up shells like all day long. I'm thinking, what are you doing with all those shells? You know, like, it's not like Myrtle Beach is known for their beautiful sand dollars and you're gonna sell them or anything like that. But then you see like the older gentleman and he's like walking around and he has like one of those like telescopic net things, you know, and he's like picking up shark teeth. And then you see, okay, let's just be real people. You see the, the men and women that as they're walking up and down the beach, you're like, oh, you should not be wearing that. You know, we've all done it, okay? You, you could judge me all you want for being judgmental, but then you're being judgmental, so joke's on you. But you're like, yeah, you don't need to be wearing that. There was even one couple we saw in the, in the water, and I don't know if the wife uh, was afraid of the waves, but she was holding on for dear life with her husband. And at one point she jumped onto her husband. He went down and I didn't see him come back up. So not really sure what happened there. But the beach is interesting um, while you people watch. But I say all that because not to get overly spiritual. Um, we, went, we went Saturday to Saturday. We got back last night. And so 
I know I'm a heathen. I didn't go to church last Sunday. All right, I was at the beach. And, um, and so while I was there, I was just having this thought um, as I'm watching people thinking, I wonder what it's like to like not go to church or to be a priority or in your plan on Sunday mornings. And they're probably thinking the same thing of me. Like, who's that guy? He, he should be in church. Um, but as I'm looking, it, it kind of went, I went down this rabbit trail, if you will, of saying, okay, I wonder, do these people go to church anywhere? Or I wonder if they're a Christian. And it kind of brought me to this question that I, I put in my phone. And I think it's a really good question. And I think it's a good question for all of us to ask. But I was thinking, why don't people follow Jesus? So you can kind of see this is my ADHD brain connecting these dots. And I'm thinking, why don't people follow Jesus? And we could probably all answer that with a slew of different answers, of different things of maybe it was never a priority for their family. They didn't grow up going to church. Their, their parents didn't claim to follow Jesus. And so it just wasn't in their lifestyle. It was never a part of who they were um, to see someone model Jesus and what it looks like to follow Jesus, or maybe the exact opposite. And some of us, this is our story, where we grew up in church and something really bad happened, and maybe we were burned or have a bad experience or something happened to a family member or a friend, and we're like, nah, that's no longer for me. And we just walk away from our faith and following Jesus and church all in general. So maybe you have that. Maybe it's a mixture of those things. Maybe they grew up with a different religion, all these different things. I mean, we've had conversations with our friends with that, but let's make it personal because this is what I did. I was thinking, why don't people that I'm directly connected to, why don't they follow Jesus? Think about that question. I think it's a good question if you're a believer to really ask on a daily basis, why don't people that I'm directly in contact with follow Jesus? And maybe you know their story, maybe you don't, but you've kind of heard it say, I know it's cliche that we as believers can be the only Bible some people read. Have you ever heard that? And while that's true, there's actually more than just us being the Bible, right? It's really looking like Jesus and being like Jesus. And I alluded to this a couple weeks ago. I think we're all guilty of this. And so I'm not better than you by any means, but I'm just reminded that I think we can often, and Brian who, who taught last week in my absence alluded to this too, is that you and I can be the biggest barrier to someone coming to know Jesus. And I think we can become barriers to people following Christ at, because we exalt ourselves over exalting God. That if you think about it, the people that we come in contact with, they see more of us than they see Jesus. Our, our family oftentimes, our kids see more of us than they do Jesus in us. Or our friends, we give them more of us than Jesus. Now hear me out. I'm not saying you should lock yourself in some convent, you know, and wear a Christian t-shirt every day and just all, you just kind of talk Christianese. But I'm saying we should be a reflection. And Paul has talked about this over and over in this letter to the Philippian church that we should be lights. We should work in a manner, uh, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And it really stems, he says that in chapter 1, verse 27. And if you've been here over, this is the seventh week. We have four more weeks to go as we're walking through this incredible letter written by the Apostle Paul to this church that he started in this very culturally savvy metropolitan area known as Philippi. He's writing this letter and it's a thriving church. 
God is doing amazing things in the people at this church. And I think what he's reminding them is, hey, just because you're thriving and doing amazing things, don't let that get to your head. Don't exalt yourself over exalting God. And so we've looked at that, and as he says in chapter 1, hey, in your life, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, as we've seen in the last few weeks, he begins to unpack what does that even mean to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And a couple things that I just kind of put down in, in summary, he talks about, hey, we should be unified. That as believers, we should be of the same mind. We should act like Christ and be surrounded and unified in that, not divisive in nature as uh, believers. We should be together, the same love. Paul says, being in full accord with one another. He also says, for us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. So essentially, as believers, um, if we're gonna exalt God, we need to serve people. We need to be humble. We don't need to be arrogant and prideful people. We need to be people that are um, pointing others to Jesus by serving them and putting their needs, as Paul says, before ourselves. He also says, which this is kind of a theological um, kind of connotation. I won't spend a lot of time in it. He tells us to work out our salvation. Essentially saying, hey, Christ has done the work in us internally, and it is our responsibility as believers to take that transformation that has happened inside and externally live as God has changed us. Not, oh, God has changed me. Let me just keep on living the same life that I've always lived. No, let people see. Those are, are different ways to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then two weeks ago, which I, I, we can all be reminded of this, is do everything, uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing and complaining. I mean, think about that. I was even, we're at a beach house, like on the beach. And I'm thinking, you know, I wish this house was a little bit bigger. You know, like, why is the gas grill nasty? <laughs> you know, type thing. And as believers, we shouldn't be complaining about those things. That those are ways to walk worthy, um, in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so we get to chapter three, where we're gonna be this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter three. You can follow along. We have a church app you can follow along. It's also on the screens. If you use the Bible app for your reading, um, whatever. If you need a Bible, um, I would love to provide one for you and your family. But in, in chapter three, really Paul um, begins to unpack and dive a little deeper into, okay, how do we exalt God with our lives? And what does it mean for us to kind of step aside and let God be God in those things? Because all of chapter one and chapter two, Paul's essentially saying in a really fancy way, hey, don't act like you, act like Jesus. Don't act like you, act like Jesus. And we get to chapter three and Paul gets personal in this. And, and really starts to talk about some things. So I want to hit on the first three verses separately, and then we'll, we'll read the rest all the way to verse 11 this morning. And so follow along with me. Chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, right, is no trouble to me and safe for you. So I love this because Paul is about to, he spent the last two chapters really unpacking a lot of things and he's going to start landing the plane, even though we have all chapter three and 
chapter 4, which is small. But he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, it's easy for us just to kind of go by this and think it's some kind of salutation or something in this letter as he's in, in this Roman jail cell. But he is really saying, hey, find your joy in the Lord. Don't find it in just the church and how it's thriving. Let your joy come from God. Now, I've said this before, and I'm going to say this until I die. As believers, that because of the work of Jesus in our life, we should be the most joyous people in the world. We should be known. Now, are we going to get frustrated? Are there going to be times when we lose our cool? Absolutely, we're human. But the times that we are joyous should outweigh the times that we're frustrated and disappointed and angry about things. We should be known for our joy rather than our anger. And you know this is just as well as I do. Some believers walk around life looking like they just smell a horrible fart, right? And they're just mad at everybody. It's kind of like, eh, you know, I don't really like this church, you know. And I'm like, oh my goodness, we should be people that are ecstatic because Jesus has saved us at our lowest point in time in the sin that we deserve hell. Jesus came to save us. That's something to celebrate. And so when we worship, when we pray, it's not a... Uh, we got to do this worship. I hate this song. This song is so dumb. You know, it should be like, yes, we get to celebrate. And thank God we, we're able to, in a, in a country where we're free to go to church and say, man, I can worship how I want to worship, and I can pray, and I can thank God for the life that he has, he has given me, the, the good, bad, and ugly. I thank God for, and that should be rooted in rejoicing in God. And so Paul says this, hey, rejoice in the Lord. Don't let it be man-made joy. Not in your successes as a church or successes in life. Let it be in the Lord. And then verses 2 and 3. I just want to unpack these. All right? So some of y'all are about to get awkward, and that's okay. It says this. It says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil doers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. They put no confidence, we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, this is culturally really, really important. And it might get awkward for a couple minutes here. Because what Paul is saying, he's like, hey, he offers this warning. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Then he offers this warning. And he says, watch out for the dogs, the evildoers, the ones who mutilate the flesh. And then he says, for we are the circumcision. Now, if you've been in Bible study, you see this a lot through the Old and the New Testament, this word circumcision. And yes, I'm saying that repeatedly. I'm going to make it awkward, okay? But we know what that is, okay? If you're parents, you know what that is, okay? This isn't a sex ed class. I'm not looking for you to ask homework and explain it to your kids. But I think this is important, and here's why. Paul is mentioning this because if you go all the way back to Genesis 17, God enters into a covenant with Abraham. Father Abraham, the father of Israel. And when he does, as a grown man enters into this covenant, God commands that, that all male babies be circumcised by the eighth day. He also at that time says, hey, adult men need to be circumcised. Can you imagine Abraham's like, come again? <laughs> What'd you say? He probably like, what'd you say? Okay. 
And, but it was just a, a command. You look through Old Testament times, especially through Leviticus, it was just one of those rituals and uh, traditions according to the law because what it did is twofold. Circumcision reminded the people, right, of this external physical thing that, hey, this is what God does. You're, you're physically marked as God's chosen people, the Israelites. This is how you're marked as God's chosen people. It wasn't the norm culturally, and so the Jews practiced this. It was part of the norm. This is how you were marked. But it also symbolized what God does, that the word circumcision actually means to cut out or cut around, and that it was this symbolism of what God does to the heart of man. It was also kind of symbolic. It was supposed to remind them of the sin of man. And so through all those things, we see that in the Old Testament, along with a lot of other rituals, sacrifices and different offerings, burnt offerings, different things that they needed to do. So when Jesus comes and um, establishes this in the New Testament, we see this, it's no longer about the Old Covenant, it's about the New Covenant in Jesus. Are you tracking with me so far? Some, some historical context. When Jesus comes, he says, Hey, all those things were great, and I'm not here to abolish those things, but I'm here to, um, to come and to let you know I am, like, wrapped up in all those things. So you no longer have to sacrifice a, uh, a pure lamb. I am the sacrificial lamb. You no longer have to do all these burnt offerings. I am the burnt offering. And so all those things are wrapped into Jesus. And that's why you see the Pharisees when Jesus comes are like, ah, you got to do this, this, and this, and this, and this. And he's like, no, you don't have to do that. And so at this time, why, why, why it's important is that there is a group called the Judaizers. They're essentially like the Pharisees that as Paul is preaching and establishing these churches, Paul is saying, hey, by the grace of God, you've been saved by your faith. It's not all these works. It's not all these traditions. It's not all these rituals. It is, hey, by grace and grace alone. While he's preaching that, the Judaizers are coming behind like, no, 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 no. You have to be circumcised. You have to obey Moses' law. You have to do these traditions. You have to do these rituals and all that stuff. And so it went against the gospel, went against what Paul was preaching. So he is warning the church of Philippi, whoa, whoa, whoa. Beware of the evildoers. He calls them dogs. Who let them dogs out? Okay. Um, anyway, that was ADD, okay? Is that he, he says, beware of the dogs and the evildoers. And he even calls it, he doesn't say circumcision. He says, mutilators of the flesh. Because it really is empty. It has nothing to do with the spiritual condition of their hearts. And to really quote Jesus, Jesus says of these people, you care more about the outside of the cup than you do on the inside. And so Paul is addressing that and saying they put their confidence in the flesh. And, and he's like, hey, that's not what it's about. And so then he's going to unpack, we'll read uh, verses uh, 4 through 11, why we should be rejoicing and not putting our confidence in our flesh, but instead our confidence in God. So this is what Paul says, uh, picking up in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He's about to lay out his spiritual resume, if you will. Hey, if anybody has confidence in the flesh, he's saying, it's me. He says, if anyone else thinks he has um, reason for, for this confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin. That was a prestigious tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews. And as to the law, a Pharisee. Like I know everything. I know the law. As to zeal, a, per a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, have I obeyed the law? I'm blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything the, uh, as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. And it's for his sake I have suffered and lost all these things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's saying, it's not about me and my works. It only comes, my righteousness only comes from Jesus and my faith in him. So he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So man, let's just unpack this a little bit. There's really three things want us to pull. How can we rejoice in the Lord, mature in Jesus, and really exalt him over us? And the first one that Paul's alluding to is that we must, as believers, resist gain. Resist gain. Now this gets uncomfortable because if we're all honest, we like gaining things. We like working hard for, for things. Men, we want to be able to provide for our families. We find affirmation and identity in that job promotion, in that sales bonus, knowing that we accomplished some things. We, we like to gain those things. We work hard for those things. You know, I've said this before. Hey, I worked hard, so I'm going to buy that. Women, you, you want to gain things. You want to have a nice car to drive. You don't want to drive a hoopty, all right? You want a nice house that's presentable where you can have people and friends and neighbors in and not be embarrassing. You want nice outfits with nice shoes and the handbags and earrings and you know, all that stuff, you know? <laughs> you want that, all right? You want those things. You want to be able to vacation with your family. Students, you want the newest phone. You want your first car to be a nice car. You know, you don't want it to be a 1990 Tercel, all right? You want it to be nice. You don't want it to be an embarrassment. We want, it, we want things. We desire nice things. I mean, I would love a beach house, lake house, a boat, and a newer car, right? We all have dreams and have those things. And while I'm not saying it's, not, uh, it's bad to have nice things, I'm not saying that, but we have to be very, very careful in what we're gaining and to resist those things because our world says all of those items uh, define success and satisfaction. And you and I both know that while it does seem nice to have a boat and go out on the lake, and those things are nice, all right? I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody if you have those things. There is a point of tension that you can have all the things in the world and still be very, very unhappy. Be very, very unsatisfied. There's, I, I can't tell you, it doesn't matter how much money you have, the same problems are the same problems. And so those things in our world define success and satisfaction. And Jesus has said in his ministry, and Paul is reiterating, hey, those things are nothing. He calls them rubbish. He says, you can have all the things in the world, but, but really, who cares? What should matter to us is that the things that matter to God must matter 
to us. The things of God must matter to us as believers. If we're going to exalt Jesus and God over ourselves, the things that matter most, how you take care of people, how you love people, how you forgive people, how you treat people, how you serve the body of Christ in the church, how you tithe, how you raise your kids, all of those things are so much more important than the things that we have, that we have to resist that gain. We have to love like Jesus. Mark um, 8, 36, Jesus says this in the gospel of Mark, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You probably have heard that before. You have all the things in the world, but what does it really matter if you forfeit your soul? You forfeit your life for God. And if the gospel is going to advance through us, and this is what Paul's reminding, hey, it's, we got to desire more of the things of God, not the things of this world. Paul's like, hey, I've been there, done that. I got the t-shirt. I have, here's my resume. And all that stuff is rubbish. It doesn't really matter. I, I'm going to resist that. But then kind of twofold, second point this morning is that we must embrace loss. That's what Paul did. He, he says this, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. And he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So his personal relationship with Jesus as my Lord, Paul says, having that knowledge and knowing him outweighed and surpassed anything he could have gained uh, um, or had in his life. He embraced that loss. And if we're really honest this morning, oftentimes the things that we gain can become the biggest hurdles of living in obedience to God, right? And once again, not that having things is bad, man. If you have a nice house and boat, all that kind of stuff, that's awesome. Invite me over. I love to go out on a boat, okay? Those things aren't bad things, but they can be hurdles in living in obedience to God. Just being real. I've had so many conversations with believers in the past that's like, hey, you know, man, we just can't, we're just not going to serve in the church um, because we have a lake house and we're gone almost every other Sunday. We might come like once every six weeks. So it's just hard for us to serve since we're at the lake all the time. I'm, man, I love that you're at the lake. But that's a, that's a barrier or a hurdle of obedience to God. Or, you know what, man, we would love to tithe. You know, we, we put like a $100 bill in the, in the plate like every, every couple weeks. But um, it's just really hard. Our, our finances are stressed. It's just really hard to give. And it's like, okay, I'm just being honest. It's like, well, you do do several extravagant vacations a year. <laughs> so maybe it's a priority thing. Or how about, I, I, I really can't lead my family. We're having a hard time leading my family through devotions and prayer and stuff like that. It's just, we just can't find the time. Meanwhile, I mean, you watch plenty of sports. You're at different games. You're season ticket holders to, to whoever. That stuff is great stuff. But they can be hurdles to those things, right? They can be hurdles of really, truly living in obedience to God. And Paul's like, hey, I count all that stuff as loss. I'm embracing the loss. I look at everything because what is most important in my walk uh, with God is knowing him. That's so important in my life. And so have, have the things, but don't let them be hurdles. Let them, don't let them hold you back from truly living for um, him. And Matthew, um, once again, recorded Jesus saying this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. We have to set some things aside. We have to make some adjustments in our life that if we're going to exalt God and Jesus over ourselves, we really have to make Jesus the priority in our lives. And so I, I, hope, I hope you can hear my heart. Uh, I, I don't want you to leave here and be like, I'm going to sell my house and my boat. I'm going to live in my van down by the river. You know, pastor thinks it's horrible to own a boat, man. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying those things can be hurdles. So just be careful, right? Just be careful about those things. Are you serving? Are you living in obedience with him? Is your relationship with God and how you're raising your kids to do the same, is that important? And the third thing, if we're gonna exalt God over ourselves, it's very simple, pursue Christ, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of in all of these, these, these first two points. But this third point, pursue Christ. Paul says this. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. I mean, that's like a big statement. Like who wants to share in the suffering of Jesus? But he wants to know him intimately in such a way that he's saying, I don't just, this is not just a, I want to know him. Like I want to have greater personal awareness of my relationship with Jesus. And this is my Enneagram number. And I wonder where Jesus falls and all that. It is a, I want to know him. I want to have a relationship with him. I want to share in those things that Jesus shares in. I want to be right there in him, walking with him. And he says, so I want to know him. I want to share in those sufferings, becoming like him. Becoming like him. That's the purpose of our lives. That if you're a believer, this process called sanctification is us getting rid of the sin and the nastiness in our life and taking daily steps to be more like Jesus. And Paul is saying, hey, that should be your prayer. Not to be this great awesome church. Hey, as believers, follow Jesus. Don't act like you. Act like Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, if you and I resist gain, we embrace this loss that he's talking about, and we just pursue Christ with everything that we have, just maybe we can exalt Jesus over ourselves. And so the question I want you to wrestle with is the band will lead us in this closing song in just a second is what is one area in your life? We opened up by saying, hey, why don't people follow Jesus? Now I want you to kind of personally reflect, what's one area creating a barrier in your life from others following Jesus? Where are they seeing more of you than Jesus in your life? Think about that. Maybe it starts in your family. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's at your job. You have people that you're like, man, I haven't taken advantage of the opportunity God has given me to really show them Jesus. They see me of me, more of me than they do Jesus. And maybe today you just want to, during this song, just have a time of commitment to say, God, I need your help. I don't know how to do that. I don't know what it looks like, but I need people to see more of you than me. Because we all know, and I'll be the first to admit, they see me, they're just going to see a failure. They're just going to see a sinner. I want people to see Jesus. And as we went through my wife's grandmother's funeral, and I was just reminded, we're not promised tomorrow. And I know it sound, might sound morbid, but if you were to die, you know, what are people going to say? Is it mean, oh, he was funny. He was really, he was just always the life of the party. Or they say, my life was radically changed because he showed me Jesus. She showed me Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, everybody who talked at, at um, Sloan's grandmother's funeral, it's like, man, 
Jesus. It was all about Jesus. That's my hope and my prayer for myself. Selfishly, people see more of Jesus than me. I hope that's your prayer too. And so during this closing song, maybe you just want to talk to God. Let's have some conversation. Hey, God, help me in this area. And if you don't know Jesus, I would love to talk to you. We could talk down here. We could talk afterwards. Maybe you want to know some information about getting baptized and taking that step of obedience. There's been some barriers, maybe even afraid to get baptized. Love to talk to you about that. Or maybe you're new. This is your first time. You just have some questions about the church. Um, We would love to talk to you. So let's pray and close and worship together. Father, it is our desire that people see more of you than us. We make mistakes all the time. And I know for me, selfishly, I want my kids to see Jesus in me. I'm going to see it in the way I work, in the way that I talk, the way I treat their mom, what our marriage looks like. I want people in the community to see Jesus, not me. I want them to see you. And Father, that takes a huge step, getting out of our comfort zone and stepping aside and saying, you know what, I'm going to resist gain. I'm going to embrace some loss for the sake of Christ. I'm going to get uncomfortable because I just want to pursue you that I may know you. Father, I can only imagine if this room was full of people that, that in this moment claim that right now. I just want to know you and they wholeheartedly mean it and pursue you. What can happen in the lives of the people that we're directly connected to? And so will you just expose the area that's holding us back where people don't see Jesus in us, they see us? Will you expose that in this time? Can we confess those things? And God, just come to you before you and say, God, I need your help. You are so good and gracious to expose that sin and to help us walk through and to just to abide in you that we can know you so others can know you. Father, we sing and we pray and we rejoice in you this morning. It's in your son's powerful name we pray. Amen. Let's stand up and close and worship together.